All right, kids, y'all can be dismissed. I'll go right ahead. I know what they're doing. System. Well, I applaud y'all for braving this treacherous weather to get out to Bible study. None of y'all hit any dangerous areas. This morning, um, when I was being pressured to cancel everything at 10 a.m. Um, by people who shall remain nameless, um, it, it, it was just kind of humorous looking at it, saying, I think the sun's going to come out in a few hours. And it did, and it's dry. So we went from the treacherous snow storm to, to dry. And so... Um, I, I figured we would either have our lowest attendance ever because everyone had already checked out at 10 a.m. saying the day is done, we can do nothing else, or our highest attendance ever because everyone was stir-crazy and needed to get out and see people who were grown up. <laughs> and so um, I'm, I'm excited personally for some grown-up conversation today, and, uh, and I'm glad y'all are here. Um, so let's, uh, let's pray and we'll get through it. Lord, we come to you now. We thank you for the time just to stop in the middle of the week and to study your word. Um, I pray for a fruitful time tonight. Um, Lord, I know that um, it, this is likely a room full of people who are um, a little tired, um, need refreshment, need encouragement, and um, I pray that, that, that we would receive that tonight um, as we converse with one another and as we engage our Lord and as we submit to the Word. Um, Lord, you are very, very good, and I don't know that we take the time to really lay hold of that reality. And so I think things like this help. So that's my hope tonight, Lord. We, we love you very much. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we talked about fasting. Um, I won't ask for a show of hands on who, who tried that this week because you're not supposed to do that. It's supposed to keep between you and the Lord. Um, but um, what do we learn from Jesus about fasting? One, it's between you and the Lord. What else? What does your father do who sees that in secret? He rewards. That's right. So there's something that happens when you're fasting. We're talking about disciplines. If this is your first time with us, we're talking about spiritual disciplines. Sorry, I didn't do my precursor to the, the intro. There's a precursor and an intro, then a review, and I just messed it all up. We're studying spiritual disciplines. We've been studying them for uh, the better part of, what, five, six weeks now? We've looked at meditation and prayer and fasting, and, um, and tonight we're going to look at the last inward discipline, and then we'll move on to the outward disciplines. Um, so, in review, the Lord sees us in secret, and he rewards those who go to him in such a manner. Now, when should we fast, according to our study last week? Regularly? What, what did they, remember when the... Uh, the uh, finger pointers were looking at them saying, hey, y'all, these guys are fasting, y'all aren't, why? Well, what, did, what was Jesus' reply? It's not the right time. But what did he say was the right time? When the bridegroom is taken, which would be now. So really, I think a lot of us, um, I've been guilty of it. The church I grew up in, just, we didn't talk about fasting very much. Um, I, think, I think it's a lot of times looked at as something that they, people used to do back in the day, or it's sort of a biblical thing that back when they were like real like uptight about spiritual issues, they would fast or something, and that's not the case at all. <clears throat> in fact, according to what Jesus says, that when the bridegroom is taken back from that time between when he's taken back and before he returns to take us home, that's the time to fast. And so what we learn is if there's ever a time, that, that time is now. Um, what, should, what was the recurring theme? It was in Acts 13 and it was in Acts 14 where fasting goes hand in hand with these two other things over and over again. Worship and prayer. It's not this thing that you do separate. It's this thing that goes with worship. A lot of time, again, church I grew up in, sort of the view was you go to church rather than seeing it as, a, as an identity, seeing yourself as a people. It was often referred to as a building. And what that would mean is that you would go to the church building to do some worshiping for a little bit of time. And so what's wrong with that is that we're a people 
And we're called to worship all of the time. Our whole life is to be a life of worship, live for the glory of God. We don't have compartments that we put our life into where we do worship over here sometimes and we do whatever we want over here. And so um, worship and prayer, we found, go hand in hand with fasting. Um, fasting helps your prayers. You, you, it's, there's things you do for the sake of your prayers. And it caused us to ask, well, would we even know if something was done against our prayers? Would we even know if our prayers were hindered? Are we in tune enough with our walk with the Lord to know the state of our prayers? Uh, what were the important things we found last week that sometimes, though they are important, will take a back seat to prayer? We had four of them. I heard a faint answer from the back somewhere. Things that, though they're important, they're not more important than prayer. And we see that that because there are times where we do away with those things for the sake of prayer. Productivity. Intimacy with the spouse. Sleep. Food. I mean, those are all really, really important things. Biblically, they're all really important things. But what we see is that our prayers are so important that for the sake of our prayers, there are times where we put all of those things away for a, for a season, for a time, for a, uh, sometimes it's hours, sometimes it's days, um, for the sake of our prayers. So that, that shows us the importance of our prayers, the importance of how these things work together. Um, there were two things near the end of the study, and if you all get these up, I'll just be impressed because I actually had to look them up and they're my notes. Um, um, there was some, something that fasting reveals and it reminds. What does fasting reveal? Remember that from last week? Boom, two gold stars for you. Fasting, uh, good job on the notes. It's good shepherding right there. She's reading his notes while he's kind of doing this. So um, I love it. Uh, fasting reveals the things that control us. Um, remember that example that Paul Tripp has where he shakes the water bottle and says, well, I shake the water bottle, what comes out? Water, why? Because that's what was in it. And so sometimes if we afflict ourselves purposefully, do away with something, make sure that we're being disciplined and showing discipline in our lives, that the things that will bubble up are the things that control us. We'll, we'll see anger bubble up. or so, Like one person cannot eat for a day and another person cannot eat for a day. And at the end of the day, this person is completely depressed and lethargic, and this person is angry and in search of food. But what you'll see is what, the things that control us and the way they control us, those things bubble to the surface. And so what does fasting remind us of? That we're sustained by what? Yes, the Word and God's work. God's Word, God's work. Because what we found with Jesus, Jesus said, my food is to do the work of God. And that doesn't make any sense unless what he is saying is the very work that I'm doing for God sustains me. It nourishes me, which is a great reminder because a lot of times we think, man, I'm wore out. I'm done. I'm tapped. I'm finished. I can't do anything else for God or else I'm going to just fall over. I have no more energy. I have no more patience. When in reality, he's saying, if you're doing my work the right way, Yes, you may be tired, but you can rest assured that even the work itself will sustain you. Even the work itself will nourish you. So you need to counsel yourself when you're thinking, I don't want to help that person. I don't want to minister to that person. I don't have what it takes. Counsel yourself and remember that God sustains you in the work. And we remembered Isaiah 58 where it says, if you pour yourself out for the afflicted, then your gloom will be turned to the noonday. Your, your, your depression, your darkness will be turned to light. So you can actually not only believe that he'll sustain us, you can battle depression by ministering to other people and by doing the work of God. You can battle gloominess and, and uh, lack of energy and lack of motivation and lack of encouragement by serving others, pouring yourself out for the afflicted, doing the work that God tells us to do, which is pretty vast. Every week so far... This thing's kind of ringing, or maybe it's just in my head that that's the case. That's no big deal. Just tell me. Um, I've started every study so far by reminding y'all that we learn to meditate by meditating, and we learn to pray by praying. 
And we don't just learn to meditate and pray by studying. But tonight's study is on studying. So I want to back up a little bit and say that studying is not the only way for you to learn how to meditate and learn how to pray. It's incomplete in and of itself. But rest assured, studying is a massively important step to the process of growing in the spiritual disciplines. Studying is a massively important step in, in placing ourselves in the path of disciplined grace, as, we've ta- as uh, Foster calls it. So I've started all these studies by saying studying's not enough, but tonight we're actually going to focus on the importance of studying. Although it is not enough, it is a very key component to having success in, in understanding what you're doing and therefore in doing the things rightly. Tonight we're going to consider the final inward discipline of study. Um, that may be a surprise to some of you that, that, it, that that's even a spiritual discipline and you may be wondering, is that in the Bible? Because I'm, I'm not sure. I probably could have argued in my high school and early college days that that was not a spiritual discipline, and you are, you are imposing that on the scripture because I didn't like to study. And, and I probably didn't actually get into reading or things of um, any educational interest <laughs> until well into my 20s. Um, so uh, if you're thinking, that's a discipline? Yes, it is, and it's an important one. And it's good to remember from the get-go that the purpose of all of these disciplines is total transformation of the person. We're not just trying to improve in this area a little bit or improve in this area. What we're studying is a way of life, really, where don't neglect these disciplines. Don't neglect to pray, to study, to meditate, to have intake of the word, and then these other things that we'll consider in the coming weeks. So you may be thinking, well, how am I going to make time for that? How am I going to make time for that? How am I going to do that? It is a lifestyle that we're talking about. What we're going to find here, we learn that prayer is really, really important, but to pray rightly, you have to meditate before that. So that's where we say that productivity and efficiency are a little less important because you may say, well, I got something to do. I'm going to pray about it and I'm going to go do it. And the word says, well, spend some time actually meditating on what that is so that your prayers aren't just rambling and you're not just going on and on and on or you're not distracted, you're not falling asleep, but you're focused and your prayers have power. Your prayers are intentional. And so the point of all these disciplines is total transformation of the person. So as we start talking about study, I want you to ask yourself, do I believe I really need that kind of transformation? Because if you're thinking, man, I'm pretty good across the board, except maybe I could up my prayer game a little bit, I would ask you to, um, to reconsider maybe some other areas you can up your game, because this is, um, this is looking at total transformation of the person, and that's what believers be- would confess that they need as they stand before Christ. So turn to Romans 12. That phrase, turn to Romans 12, is probably a phrase I've used more than any other phrase in the course of my ministry here at Crosspoint. Um, Patrick Fields was just a wee youth, youthful boy when we started studying Romans, and uh, you were like 14 or 15, weren't you? That's awesome. Everybody feels old. That's great. Yeah, um, we, we, we went through Romans, and this, this chapter was a chapter that just just rocked me to the core. It just I realized that my view of how my mind works and my view of worship and my view of the very purpose of life was really, really skewed and small. And I realized in this chapter a lot of selfishness that, that I have in my own life, a lot of things that I needed to really, really work on. But Romans 12 is... There's almost a moment every day where I, I go to it. There's almost a moment in every counseling session that I go to it. There's almost a moment in every email that I'm sending where I could include it because it is so important in explaining why we exist. What is my created purpose? Why am I breathing borrowed air here on earth? And Romans 12, verses 1 through 2 says this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. So he's making an appeal to them but it's an appeal based on God's mercy. He's saying, without God, you can't do this. But because of God, you can do this, and you're expected to do this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That word bodies is indicative of your entire being, not just your physical body. As a living sacrifice. So some people are cool with the idea of dying for God, but when you start talking about living for him, it's sort of, well... 
The other one's a little more dramatic and exciting, and I'm cool with that, but living for him every menial moment of every Tuesday, a living sacrifice. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That is your created purpose, to live for the glory of God moving in a manner that is based completely on the mercies he's given you in Christ. He's not telling you to do something here that's impossible. He doesn't call us to things that we are incapable of doing in Christ. He gives us blessings in Christ, encouragement in Christ, and then says, now go and do this. And look at how it all comes together in, the second, in that second verse. He's saying your whole life, the whole purpose is to live for God's glory, present your entire being to him. And then he says, do not be conformed to the world But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. If you've ever been in a Wednesday night study more than twice, you've probably heard me talk about these verses. How is the mind renewed? Through the word. Preaching. Prayer. Prayer. I'm going to get a little technical here, breaking it down. And as we look at this, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. We could take that and say, how is the mind renewed? Because we're looking for renewal. If we don't have renewal, we're not even on step one. We need the renewal because we want to get to the transformation. The mind is renewed by applying it to those things that will transform it. Applying your mind to the things that will transform it. So to get our our bearings on this and what we're talking about, real simply, what is the opposite of renewal? Decay? Deteriorating? Complacency? What'd you say? Deprivation? Stagnation? Those are terrible words to describe the spiritual wellness or lack of wellness in the life of one of God's children. The words that I came up with were tired, destruction, impoverishment, exhaustion. What we're seeing here is that some of us might be tired and worn out because we're not studying enough. Some of us might feel dead, dry, and unable to give anything else because we're not studying enough. One scholar even said, he who studies well prays well. He was just saying it's inevitable. If you study the word and you go to it, you'll end up meditating well and you will end up praying well. We cannot expect any change in our lives outwardly if it does not happen in our mind. It's God's design. He's a creator who made you to function like that. Your mind will not be renewed if you do not apply it to the things that can transform it. I have found this personally to be a huge motivation for studying because we can be really arrogant in the things we know and not mindful of the things we don't know. And we can, one guy that I was reading today, he was just saying, it's not so much that this doesn't make sense. It's just the hard part of this whole thing is convincing people that they need to learn how to study. The hard part is convincing people you need to take the time to learn how to study because it's so important to your walk with Christ. It's not just a peripheral issue. But I've found this to be a really great verse when I become cynical regarding people's ability to change. Any of y'all ever do that? Cynical in regard to people's ability to change. He's always going to be like that. This is the thousandth time they've done this. You look at your children. I've told you eight times in the last hour not to do that. What in the world is going, and we can grow cynical and frustrated. And what I've found, just, this is just observation, I have found that cynicism leads to bitterness, which leads to division. Cynicism, people stink. People are, I remember early in ministry hearing someone say, I'd like ministry if, if, for all the people. And I remember in my heart saying, yeah, people stink. They are so frustrating sometimes. It is so hard to walk with people through anything. If it's good, 
it gets old at some point. If it's bad, it gets old at some point. We get tired of each other so easily. We treat each other so poorly. So, cynicism will lead to bitterness, which by definition in Hebrews, which we've already studied on Sundays, that it's a deep root, and it will spring up, and it will defile many. I used to think that bitterness was the kind of thing that you could have, but you could kind of hide. And if you have it, you can't hide it. It will defile many. It will not only defile you. It will defile your friendships. It will defile your work relationships. It will defile your marriage. It will defile your parenting. Cynicism, this view that I can't change. Maybe it's not other people. Maybe you're sitting here thinking, I stink at this. I cannot overcome this sin. I cannot get out of this rut. Why do I still struggle with fear? Why do I still struggle with anxiety? Why do I still struggle with this addiction? Why do I still struggle with my marriage? Why do I still struggle as a parent? And we get in this rut thinking, maybe it's not other people, but you think, I just can't change. It's impossible. I've tried. I've done everything I can. It's not going to work. And this reminds us that you, in fact, can be transformed by the renewal of your mind. People can change. You can change. And this is a great way to preserve unity. Think about that. If, if, if cynicism leads to bitterness... And inevitably, if you don't deal with your bitterness, it's going to lead to division. That means you don't want to be around people that make you bitter. You're cynical in regards to them. Then you get bitter. And then you say, at some point, I'm out. I'm done. I'm leaving. I'm going to go find a new church. I'm going to go find a new spouse. It's not an abnormality in our culture to see that happen over and over and over again. It's not even an abnormality in the church. Some might say we're marked by division. We're not supposed to be. So cynicism leads to bitterness, which leads to division. So this tells me that taking seriously the call to be transformed by the renewal of my mind, taking seriously the call to study things the right way, is a great way to preserve the unity that we have as a gift in Christ. We don't create unity by standing around a campfire and singing Kumbaya and crying. We have it as a gift in Christ, and we preserve it. We want to do things to keep it good and right in the way that God wants it to be. Consider advertising. I just want you all to know that this is not a new concept. Like I'm, Sometimes I speak passionately about things, and I kind of laugh at myself as if I'm speaking about something that's totally mind-blowing and new. This is, this is not new. This, think about advertising. They aim to change your behavior via your mind, right? Why else would you pay a bajillion dollars to run a commercial during the Super Bowl? Because they think, if I can get in their head, I can get in their wallet. That's the whole point. Exposure, exposure, repetition, repetition, flood their mind with these things, and then they'll do what we want them to do, which is buy what we're selling. That's advertising. If you're in the advertising industry, I don't want to paint you as the devil. I'm sorry. I just know how you work. I get it. The aim is to change behavior, to change spending habits, to change where we, what, where we spend our time, to change what television channel we watch, to change what kind of bread we like on our sandwiches, all that. They try to change our behavior via our mind. And it's a wise way to look for change. It's God's design. That doesn't mean people who are seeking change are always seeking holy change. But it's just a fact. It's, a, it's something that's true to life because we were all created by a creator who designed us this way, that we will be transformed through our minds and our hearts and it will change our behaviors. Because it says, the flip side is, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The implication is if you're not studying, if you're not looking at things in more than just a passing glance, if you're not seeking to truly be transformed by the renewal of your mind, the inevitable outcome is you'll be conformed to the world. Because the world's going to conform you in the same way. It's saying if they're not being transformed by the renewal of their mind, we'll take the worn out, tired mind and we'll just capitalize on it. So study is very, very important. Some of the details we've discussed about meditation um, are probably sounding a little familiar at this point when we're talking about the discipline of studying. But I want us to know that they are different. Meditation and studying are different. First, um, Foster, in his book, he, he says this, and this, this is helpful for me, just these really clear distinctions. Meditation is devotional. Study is analytical. Meditation will relish a word. Study will explicate the word. Although meditation and study often overlap, they constitute two distinct experiences. Study provides a certain objective framework 
within which meditation can successfully function. What all he's saying in short is, when we study things, we have a, a worldview, we have a perspective, we have a framework, we have a lens, however you want to picture it, that allows us to meditate rightly and to pray rightly and to respond to really anything rightly. It's this objective framework. And these other things can successfully function when it's right. But what you'll find is if you never study anything, you never have any biblical input and you go to meditate, you're not going to have any fuel. You're not going to have any fodder for the fire. And you're certainly not going to go and pray something that's powerful and that is connecting to the living God in a way that matters. So, um, Piper wrote a book called Think, and it's about, um, he cites a verse where he's saying, when we think, it's like this fueling of a fire, the stoking of a fire, and when that happens, the ideas come out, thoughts come out, and, and clarity comes out that we wouldn't have otherwise. It's just a whole book on saying it's good to study, and here's why. It's a lot of details. It's a really great book, but something he said in there was this, and this helps us to put it in perspective, because remember, we, we need input from the Word, and then that's going to give us something to meditate on so we can go and pray. And then we sometimes fast to help focus and empower our prayers. Sometimes we'll refrain from other things to help us focus on our prayers. But we see all of this having to do with, with prayer. And, and this kind of helps me to see how this fits into the equation because ultimately this is all about our relationship with God. It's not just about rigidity and these things you do. It's about what, this, this is the way in which we walk with God. This is how we get on the path of discipline and grace and we're walking with our Lord. Piper says that, Right thinking about God exists to serve right feelings for God. It is not rocket science. Right thinking about God exists to serve right feelings for God. I remember when um, the first time I heard about uh, election. I know we're not supposed to talk about that publicly. But I remember hearing about election the first time. I remember I was a teenager. And I didn't know exactly what it meant. I didn't understand where it was found in the Bible. I didn't understand the context in which it was spoken. I didn't understand sovereignty, so I'm sure not going to understand election. I remember someone telling me, yeah, God elects. And I just remember saying, not my God. Shame on you. The guy's like, shame on me? Or I just read what was in the Bible. It's like, not my God. No, no, I'm not going down that road. And, And the reality was... A truth about God negatively affected my affections for God because the understanding part of it wasn't right. It was just skewed. It was uninformed. So right thinking about God exists to serve right feelings for God. Shame on us if we spend hours and hours studying and poring over big books and learning big words and parsing Greek and all this other stuff, and we never have a relationship with the Lord because right thinking is supposed to lead to right feeling and affections. Logic exists for the sake of love. Logic exists for the sake of love. Reasoning exists for the sake of rejoicing. Doctrine exists for the sake of delight. Reflection about God exists for the sake of affection for God. The head serves the heart. Thinking exists to serve admiring. Thinking is meant to serve worship and delight and satisfaction in God. So anytime someone gets up here and teaches or preaches, it's not just, not just for information's sake. Um, I was reading, I think it was Edwards who said, Jonathan Edwards who said, um, my goal is to, or maybe it's Spurgeon, I don't know, misquote in either way. Um, it said, he said, my goal is to raise the affections of my hearers as high as I can raise them uh, as long as it's affected by truth. So he's saying, I want to get up here and I want to speak truth as clearly as I can speak it so as to raise your affections as highly as I can raise them as long as they're raised only by the, the reality of truth in its, its purest form. So it's all about our walk with the Lord. So obviously, um, we know where to study the word studying. We talk about studying. The first place we probably go is the Word. Well, of course, we, we should study the Word. I don't want to assume that. I want it to be a rock-solid reality. You need, we need the Word real bad, because when we start just, just winging it and not going by what this says, we will find ourselves in a mess. We will find ourselves in the wrong behaviors because we have not thought rightly about reality. 
This is not an escape from reality, by the way. Anytime you read the word, you're getting more in touch with reality than you've ever been before. This is not something that, I mean, I've heard people refer, like, um, like people retreat into this, like, like away from real life. <laughs> no, this, this makes life make sense. Without this, you're just guessing. You're just like piddling along in some alternate form of some version of reality. This makes sense of what is absolutely most true and most real. So we are to study the word, but the word itself reveals other things that need our attention and studies. Now, I just kind of wanted to open it up to conversation. What are some things that you can think of that the word itself tells you to study or to keep a close eye on or to really hone in on or to make sure you don't miss this? Because when I say study, I'm not, just, I'm not just talking about reading a book. I'm talking about giving your mind's attention to anything that is appropriate unto the Lord. So what are some other things that the Bible says we should study? Doctrine. Got a verse for me? Yes, you do. It's in there. Doctrine, what else? Oh, come on. Fruit of the Spirit? Yeah. Absolutely. What else? Mm -hmm. Study to show thyself approved. Yep. What else? Turn to John 8. I should have let the awkward silence go on for a few more seconds, but I can't stand it. John 8. This is immediately reiterating the point that I just made about reality and how this is not an escapism sort of away from reality or we get away from reality of parenting, a reality of marriage, a reality of work, a reality of finances, so that we can have some, some rest and solace in this. This tunes us into reality. John 8, uh, 32. Yeah, 8, 32. Um, let's start in 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We quote that a lot, but the whole thing is about abiding in the word. What does it mean to abide? Remain. Stay. Don't veer from it. Don't go looking for insight, wisdom, understanding, discernment, fulfillment, happiness, joy, anywhere else. It's about abiding in the word. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So, this is, I don't want to make this something it's not, but I want to make sure we see what it is. Does truth set you free? Yes. But only if what? Yes. Only if you know it. It's the knowledge of the truth that sets you free. It's not, we just, you can't have empty phrases. I hate Christian-y empty phrases. Let's have something with some substance. It's the knowledge of the truth that sets you free. And to everyone to talk to you again. Yeah, yeah. 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 Mm 
yeah, it's this thing that has to be engaged. We can't just view truth as this sort of thing that's out there that's going to set us free. It's this knowledge of the truth, this involvement with this, with it, with this walking in it. Um, Foster says, I mean, it's a great re- I mean, reminder here. He states, many Christians remain in bondage to fears and anxieties simply because they do not avail themselves of the discipline of study. Do y'all have any, do y'all fear anything? Do y'all kind of wince and step back at anything? I, I do. I struggle with anxiety all the time. And there is no help for it apart from the Lord. You only dig yourself into a deeper hole if you try to go to other things for relief in your anxieties. It's a form of pride. That's why we humble ourselves before this because we're saying, I need this, Lord. I need the knowledge of the truth. The way I'm viewing this situation is not true. What I need to do is get as in touch with the truth of this situation as I can. And so some of us would be freed from bondage to fears and anxieties and other things simply because we don't take time to study because the knowledge of the truth sets you free. This is not an alternate truth. This is ultimate truth. The second thing is wisdom. Um, Proverbs, you don't have to turn there, but Proverbs 28, 26 says, whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. So I need to study those who are wise, study those who have gone before us, study the wisdom literature in scripture, study people that you look at and you know that person is wise. That person knows how to apply the knowledge of the truth and walk in the knowledge of the truth. Um, Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. I mean, it's... It's clear. If you trust your own mind, you're stupid. That's not the place you go for insight. <laughs> like, the, I, I heard a lot growing up, you know, just reach down deep inside and you'll find what you need. No, you won't. And not ever. <laughs> ever. You trust in your own mind, you're a fool. It says in Proverbs 4, 5, get wisdom, get insight. There's this emphatic sort of get it. Like, lay hold of it. Do, do some work. Get wisdom. Get insight. So to walk or to trust your own mind is foolish, but to renew your mind is Christ-likeness. To trust in your own mind, I got this. I know what's going on here. I don't need any insight. I don't need your help. I'm a grown man. I can do this. To trust your own mind is a fool, but to seek to be renewed in your mind is Christ-likeness. So we're called to study truth. We're called to study wisdom. We're also called to study nature. Remember in Genesis, it was well into my adult life when I realized God made trees pleasing to the sight. So go look at them. Let's study a tree. Notice how none of them are the same. Notice all the intricacies in the bark and the leaves and everything. Notice how they totally reflect the human body. We're taking botany right now with my eight and six-year-old, and we're looking at leaves and saying, look at your hand and look at the leaf. Same creator. There's no life if not for this. Isn't that the coolest thing you've ever seen? He made trees pleasing to the sight. Your God cares for you enough that he's saying, I'm going to put some stuff on the planet that will be, when they look at it, it's going to be pleasing. Don't overlook things like that. It shows us more of who our God is. So we need to study nature. Also, he says, Jesus said, look at the birds and consider the lilies. Sometimes we hear that and we take it as just this sort of, that's very metaphorical and high thinking. We should look at the birds and consider the lilies and, and the fact that we will understand that he does care for us and he will clothe us much, much in the same way, but beyond that. But you talk and talk and talk and never just look at the birds or consider the lilies. That takes time. And it's saying, oh, I'm going to study that. I want to spend some time there. I want to look at that. So truth, wisdom, nature. Turn to 1 Timothy 4. This is written particularly to those in the church who are leading in any capacity, but it's not, that doesn't mean it's only beneficial for pastors. It's beneficial for everybody, because everybody's called to do something. 1 Timothy 4, 16. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. So what does that say we should study? 
ourselves and the teaching, doctrine. <laughs> you could have used that one. Um, keep a close watch on yourself. A lot of times we like one over the other. I mean, a lot of times I'll watch the teaching closely. I'll, I'll go to the books and read. But then you got that whole keep a close watch on yourself. It's like, that's not as fun. It's a little uncomfortable. It's probably going to require change at some point. Um, keep a close watch on your lives. Uh, the Puritan Richard Baxter, who has written lots of very convicting things about leadership and serving others and watching your life, he says, it's a palpable error of some who study hard to preach exactly, yet study little or not at all to live exactly. You're called to keep a close watch on your life. Tim Keller states, he refers to, he's looking at this verse and he goes over to James 1.22 and he says, of course James won't let us forget that we must be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving ourselves. And he says this, pay attention to this, this is a really important connection. He says, this verse tells us that apart from obedience, knowledge can be deceptive. I'm up here trumpeting the importance of knowledge, but what I have to pair with it is the reality that do not be hearers only, but be doers of the word, lest you're deceived. Knowledge, when not applied, is deceitful. Knowledge can be deceptive. How might that play out? Start depending on your knowledge. Yeah. Oh, I heard a sermon on contentment but I complained in hour three of the snowing. Schools were closed the second day. I'm done. Just because you heard it doesn't mean you've lived it. Just because you've read it doesn't mean you've lived it. Just because you've taught it does not mean you have lived it. Knowledge can be very deceptive. How else might that play out? Well, that's sobering. This puts an interesting twist on some of the activities of good evangelical pastors attending ministerial conferences, listening to sermons, reading doctrinally sound books. Um, that's a reality for anyone in the church. Um, all such activities afford us these opportunities for real, real growth and progress and personal godliness and in ministry effectiveness. Um, but each of those can be an instrument of progressive self-deception. If all you do is study the word, you're no different than those who all they did was talk about something new all the time, but they never did a blessed thing for anybody. And I really want you all to take this to heart because we've studied meditation. If you don't put that to practice, that knowledge can be deceptive. We've studied prayer. We've studied evangelism. That's an easy one because we can get all caught up I got kids and I go to church, and man, whoo, that can be every bit of our time. And we know we're supposed to give our best to each other. We know that. But just because you've studied evangelism doesn't mean you've put it into practice. Are you looking for opportunities to sow the seed of the gospel just everywhere you go? Are you looking for conversations everywhere you go? Are you trying to engage anybody outside of your current circle of friends? Because the reality for us is that knowledge can be deceptive if we're not doing what God says. The last thing I thought of was current events. Last week we talked about Matthew 24, 6, how there would be wars and rumors of wars. It's good to study things that are going on in the world. Don't only study things that are going on in the world. Because you can become a news junkie real quick, right? Like you can't turn off the news feed. You, you have it on in every room and all you hear all the time you go to sleep with it, you wake up with it, and all you know, you, some of us may know more about current events than we do about the word. But what we have to remember is we should study what's going on. Ben um, recently put a deal on Facebook explaining the ideology of ISIS because that's kind of an important thing going on in our world right now. It's good to know what people are fighting for and what ideologies are pushing their behavior. It's good to know that, but, but it's good to know it so that we can understand what's really true, because if all you are is a news junkie and you just get more and more current events, you're not actually in tune with what's true. 
you're, you're in tune with whatever version of the truth you're being sold by whatever news station. It's the same thing as advertising. They want to change your behavior through your mind and your heart. So I'm not a conspiracy theorist, and they're not hiding microphones in our cheese or whatever, um, that, guy, that commercial. Oh. <laughs> but, uh, but it's good to study current events, but you've got to make sure you study them in light of this. Because this, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for reproof, correction, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent for good work. Without this, we are incompetent. Without the word, if we try to study these other things without this, we lose sight of what's really going on because this tells us what's true. It's the filter, the lens by which we make sense of all other things. What we have to see is that through studying and really applying our minds and our hearts, we're counseling ourselves with the word. It's really important that you counsel yourself with the word. When you're confused, have you ever had a situation where you're just like, this does not line up with what I know about God and his kingdom. What's going on? Has that ever happened to you? Well, rather than just saying, well, I guess one of them's a farce. No, we go to the word and we try to make sense of it. When you go through something that's confusing, when you find yourself in the midst of fear, if you're anxious, if you're just doubtful, should I put my trust in this? Should I go so far as to make this sacrifice for the sake of this thing? Is it worth it? <laughs> this is where you'll find your answer. In studying this word, there's no other way to bring us back to the knowledge of the truth which sets us free. We have to counsel ourselves with it. I want to give a plug to this book right here because I can't talk about studying the word without mentioning Howard Hendricks, Living by the Book. What were you, 16 when we did this too? Yeah. So I went when I was working with our students, um, I wanted us to learn how to study the Bible, and we went through this book, and this is the best resource I've personally found. Uh, Mortimer Adler has good stuff about how to read, some other things, but as far as studying the Bible, this book, it has pictures in it that are helpful. It has big, bold things that will help me to understand where I'm at, but the big points in this are when we are studying the Word, observation, interpretation, and application a lot of times we all rush to application. We read something in the Word, do this, okay, we're going to command and teach these things. Okay, how do we do it? And we just rush to the application point. And what he says is that most of your time needs to be spent observing. And he teaches you through this how to observe and study the Word. He said that like at least 80% of your time needs to happen. And then you need to interpret, which means what does it mean? Because rather, you can't say what does it mean for me before you even understand what it is. And before you just ask, what does it mean in general? Then you get to the application. So observation is study, 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 look, 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 what's there, what's there. Interpretation is what does it mean? And the application is what does it mean for me, where I'm at in this context right now. And so a couple of details that I just want to share, this list. If you think, ah, I think I know how to study. I'm just going to read this real quick. And this is helpful because um, it's going to take more than five minutes to do this. It talks about observation and just starting with one verse and how we have to learn how to read. Ten strategies to first-rate reading and observing and studying. Read thoughtfully, read repeatedly, read patiently, read selectively, read prayerfully, read imaginatively, read meditatively, read purposefully, read acquisitively, read telescopically. This is how you work with a paragraph. And then he says, here's some things you can look for while you're observing things that are emphasized, things that are repeated, things that are related, things that are alike, things that are not alike, things that are true to life, because what's in here is what's true to life. And then he goes on in, in uh, interpretation, saying, that was all observation, by the way, all that. Then he says, in interpretation, look at the content, the context, comparisons, culture, consultation, and then in application, he talks about four steps and nine questions you can ask and, and applying it where you're at. It is uber helpful. If, if, if you want a copy of this, I will get it for you. We'll buy them for you if you want these. It's that good of a resource to help you in growing in this, which is more important than this. I want to make sure we're clear. This is more important than this, but this will help you to understand this. Is that clear? Good. Um, <laughs> if you have any questions about that, just ask afterwards. Um, Romans 14, um, in closing, just reminds us that... Um, and I'll just paraphrase it and then pray. 
because we're pretty, pretty well out of time. It says to be fully convinced as to what you believe, but then Proverbs tells us to be teachable. So Christians, if you read Romans 14, um, the Jews and Gentiles alike have a pretty significant history of arguing over knowledge, arguing about knowledge and whose knowledge is better and whose way is better. And the reality is we're not supposed to do that. You can engage in meaningful conversation, but they're like yelling at each other across the dinner table. And in Romans 14, it says, be fully convinced as to what you believe. That's why studying is important, because by God's design, it's not okay to be wishy-washy in regards to the doctrines and, and theologies that you stand on. It's not okay to be tossed to and fro by every new book that comes out or every new speaker that comes out or every pastor that becomes popular. You're supposed to be fully convinced as to what you believe, yet completely teachable. So that's where Foster states, it soon becomes obvious that study demands humility. Study cannot happen until we're willing to be subject to the subject matter. We must submit to the system. We must come as a student and not a teacher. Not only is study directly dependent upon humility, but it is conducive to it. Arrogance and a teachable spirit are mutually exclusive. You cannot be prideful and arrogant and have a teachable spirit. And this says, be fully convinced. Don't be wishy-washy, but be teachable as well. And study will help you to do that. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you now. We're thankful for our time tonight. Um, Lord, my hope is that we become better studiers, um, better students, better humble students. Um, Lord, I'm thankful that all of us sitting here have the same design from our Creator. That our walk with you will not grow closer. That our behaviors will not be more holy if we are not seeking to apply our minds to the things that will transform it. And I am so thankful that as our creator, your design is that we can, in fact, apply our minds to the things that will transform it. And through that, grow in holiness, grow in Christ-likeness, and even beyond that, grow closer to Christ. Lord, I pray that these disciplines are a blessing to your people as I know you have designed them to be pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all be safe on those roads. Treacherous.